0: Well, today we're starting a new series, Why Sacrifice? Which is the series that we're going to be doing for the next three weeks altogether. And the reason for wanting to do this is simple. Every week, the offering basket comes around, right? And every week, we, you know, we often, for, for the folks that are part of the church, you're giving into it, you're playing a part, and which is wonderful. And every week, we exhort you to sacrifice. We want to encourage you in giving, given the amount that the Bible says about it. And yet I'm aware that it can be so easy to do this and do it like everything else, but actually have no real idea why. Why are we doing this? Why are we sacrificing? Why are we putting such an emphasis on taking our money and giving it to the Lord Jesus within the context of the church? Why is that so important? And so I thought it would be good to do three weeks. I've always wanted to do it kind of in the first 18 months of Sovereign Grace Church's existence. So having celebrated last week our anniversary, I thought, well, now's as good a time as any. Let's do three weeks before Bob Coughlin comes out. A couple of things. We are not doing this course because we need the money. All right, so don't go nervous about that because we don't need the money. Sovereign Grace Ministries give us a lot of money by God's grace and to help support this church. And you give a lot of money. So in the first um, eight months of this year, Um, You as a local church have given around $115,000 in eight months. That's a lot of money. And praise God for that. So we're not short of money um, in that sense. I'm not thinking, oh my gosh, how are we going to afford to live? It's not about the money, which is good. Because then it's easier as a pastor to rock up and preach from the Bible so that you know and so that I know this isn't about trying to get money. Because it's not. But what this is, is really an attempt to understand and grapple with one simple thing. Jesus Christ, out of all that he preached about, spent 15% of his time preaching relating to money. Why? 15 out of every 100 words he's sharing with us about missional giving. And we've got to wonder why that is. And so this is really an attempt as your pastor to care to spend some time caring on this issue. And I trust you'll see by the end of particularly this message today (laughs) that giving isn't all about the money. It's a lot more than that. There's other things going on. So today we're going to be looking at money in our hearts, looking at how our hearts and our treasures are linked. Next week, Mark Williams is going to bring God's word to us, which I'm looking forward to, looking at money and our worry and how our temptation to worry can be in the midst of our giving. And then on the third week, our final, we're going to do money and our divine opportunity. And I want to look at what 2 Corinthians 9 says about giving and the opportunity that it prevails for all of us um, as people that have money to give. And so we're going to kick off today with money in our hearts. And i will be grateful if you'd turn with me, please, to Matthew chapter 6. I want us to go straight to the words of the Saviour. And in Matthew 6, we're looking at the section which is the Sermon on the Mount. So Jesus has gathered the disciples around him and crowds have gathered on a mountain in Galilee and he begins to communicate to them about a whole range of different things. He's talking to them about really the cause of what it really means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, what it means to live for the kingdom of God. And he has discerned in his sovereign wisdom, being God, that they need to be addressed about their treasures. They need help understanding about their treasures. And the more I've spent time in this section this week, the more I've thought, just one of those strange moments where you think, Lord, help me understand, because if you are preaching to people who have very little, and yet you desperately want them to grasp treasures, how much more would you be preaching this to us in Sydney? One of the most richest countries in the world, the most rich city in the rich country... And actually the richest area of the richest city of one of the richest countries in the world. That's full on. We are very vulnerable to getting our hearts and our treasures intertwined in ways that will not be helpful for us. Which is exactly what the Saviour of the world is addressing us as disciples in this morning. And so as he gathers the disciples around him on the Mount of Galilee. I want you to understand that it's now our eyes as his disciples that are looking back at him. Our eyes are now in the crowd, and he is addressing our eyes with these words. Let's read it together. Matthew 6, verse 19 through 24. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth For either either we will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot, you cannot serve God and money. Oh Lord, we ask for your help then this morning. Lord, as we gather around your word, as I have gathered around it during this week and been convicted and refreshed around it myself, Lord, would you come through your Holy Spirit now and aid us all. Let us be equipped. Let us be challenged. Lord, would we discern that this is your voice speaking to us this morning. And Lord, have your way amongst us. In Jesus' name, amen. In any adventures of Sherlock Holmes, one of the things that happens is Sherlock Holmes spends a lot of time addressing Dr. Watson about a number of things. But One of the main things he constantly goes back to Dr. Watson on is, Dr. Watson, you see... But you don't observe. You you see, but you don't you don't perceive. And so there are numerous instances where he's doing things and he's saying things and he says, "Oh, Doctor Watson, you see, but you don't observe. You see and you don't perceive." And I think when we come to this text, spoken by the words of Jesus himself, I think our temptation can be so quickly to see it, but not perceive it at all. You see, even a brief reading of it, you think, "Oh, I think I get it." It even has a little title, doesn't it? Lay Up Treasures in Heaven. So you think, I get it, straight away. This text is about treasures in heaven, our treasures in heaven. Well, Sovereign Grace Church, you see, but you don't perceive. This isn't really about our treasures in heaven. It's about our treasures and our heart. That's what the whole text is about. So the key verse is verse 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Everything pulls from that. Everything pulls to that. And so whether you go before it or after it, it all relates into the heart. And so what we have here in this text is a whole section where Jesus wants to talk to us about our treasures and our hearts. The inner core of who we are. See, there's no question in history and culture and in life that our treasures and our hearts are linked It's not hard to see that and you only have to study, well, anything. Study history or society or the Bible and you're going to see mankind has been designed in such a way for whatever reason whereby we can so easily succumb to our treasures and our hearts being intrinsically linked. And they are. So if you take Achan in Joshua chapter 7, he's a soldier of the tribe of Judah and yet he single-handedly gets the Israelite. Army completely killed at A, along with himself and along with his family. How? Well, when they were defeating Jericho, God told them not to take anything. But Achan wanted his things. He wanted a beautiful Babylonian garment, he wanted two hundred pieces of silver and an ingot of gold, all which he saw available to him in Jericho. So he stole them. And as a result, God wiped out the entire army, along with Achan and his family. You then get to Solomon and the story of Solomon in Kings, King David's son. King David's son has now grown up and he is a king himself. And he loves the Lord in different ways. And yet he also loves money and he loves women. What's the fruit of that? Well, his whole spiritual life begins to collapse. And so by the end, it's, it's woe is me as his life collapses around him because he can't serve both God and money. And he decides to serve money and to serve women. Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. It's a, it's, a, it's a wild story, eh? In Acts chapter 5, you get two individuals that say, Look, Jesus, I want to love Jesus. I want to please Jesus in my life. So I'm going to sell my home and I'm going to bring all of the money that I gained from my home and I'm going to lay it at the apostles' feet so that it can go towards the building of the church. And the apostles call them up and say, Hey, listen, was, was this all the money that you said you wanted to give us for the sale of your home? And they say, Yeah, it was, it was all the money their hearts had been corrupted. They loved money too. So they decided they were going to keep hold of some. And they lied to the apostles and said, yeah, it's all the money, but it wasn't all the money. And God struck Ananias and Sapphira down dead in a moment. That's pretty full on. But why? Why did they even consider lying? It was their money anyway. They could have said, look, we're going to give 90% and keep 10%. They could have said that. But their love for money corrupted and We see it in the present day society as well, how without question our treasures and our hearts are linked. In 1929, when the stock market collapsed, there was an unusually large amount of suicides from people who had earned a lot of money in the past, who were well connected, but couldn't cope with life anymore. And we saw it again in 2008 during the GFC, the Global Financial Crisis. In 2008 a string of tragic suicides took place as men lost money. The acting chief financial officer of Freddie Mac, the Federal Home Loan Mortgage Corporation, hanged himself in the basement of that company. The chief executive of Sheldon Good, a leading U.S. real estate auction firm, shot himself in the head behind the wheel of his red Jaguar. And when a Bear Stearns executive learned that he would be hired, but would he would not be hired by J.P. Morgan Chase? He was so distraught that he felt that his life would come to an end that he took a drug overdose and ran straight out the window of a 29-floor tower. Why? It's just money. It's money in your pocket. The reason is our hearts and our treasures are linked. We see it in the Bible. We see it in society. We see it in history. How kind then of the Savior of the world to address us on a mount in Galilee and talk to us about this problem and talk to us about the remedy, to talk to us about what is taking place in our hearts and how we can protect ourselves from this very issue. How kind of Him in care to begin to address us as His disciples, knowing our temptation that will come because our treasures and our hearts are so linked, knowing that temptation to begin to communicate to us about them how we deal with our treasures, how we evade all the different things that we read in the Bible and we see during the society today. How do we avoid those things? Folks, I want to encourage you as we go through this today, you are going to need to think with me, okay? Because we are going to be talking concepts, we're going to be talking big ideas and if you lose track in about five minutes' time, you may as well play on your Wii or something for the next five minutes because it's going to be a real challenge. You've got to understand and track with me as we go through the different points. I've got three points Three things that I want to talk about. And in the final point, I'm going to try and string it all together as best I can to try and help it make sense. All right? Feeling brave? All right, so here's point one. God wants our hearts. We see that all the way through this text, from verse 19 through to verse 24. Because the whole point is our hearts, we must understand right from the off that God wants our hearts. He wants them. He desires them. To have our hearts. Now, our entire being has been made by God. God, in all grace, knitted us together in our mother's womb. He says in the Psalms that we were fearfully and wonderfully made. He went about building us, both our outer body and our inner body. They're all His. And so it should be no surprise then that He wants our hearts, because He made it. And so it should be no surprise that the things that He made, both outer and inner, are the things that He desires for us. And yet, our hearts He wants in particular. Because of what the heart is. Paul Tripp says it this way, just so wonderful, as he defines the heart. Because if we don't understand what the heart is, it's going to be a long day. He writes this. He says, the Bible uses heart to describe the inner person. Scripture divides the human being into two parts. The inner and the outer being. The outer person is your physical self. The inner person is your spiritual self. The synonym the Bible most often uses for the inner being is the heart. It encompasses all the other terms and functions used to describe the inner person. So spirit, soul, mind, emotions, will, and so forth. These other terms do not describe something different from the heart. Rather, they are aspects of it, parts or functions of the inner person. Listen, the inner heart, then, is the real you. It is the essential core of who you are. Though we put a tremendous amount of emphasis on the outer person, we must always remember that the true person is the person within. I love that. The heart. When the Bible talks about the heart, that's the real you. It's the core of who you are. Your spirit, your soul, your mind, your emotions, your will. And so the true person is the person within. We don't think about that a lot, and yet it's a truth that we all obey. Because when you say to me, I'm just having such a lovely time getting to know Brendan, I don't go away thinking, oh, that must mean like Brendan's nose, or Brendan's ear. I know full well, as do you, that you mean getting to know Brendan's heart, the core of who he is, what makes him tick. The heart is that person. The heart is the real you. It's the core of who you are. And So it's no surprise then, that God wants our hearts. Jesus didn't die and he didn't come to the world to save our outer behaviours, did he? He didn't come just so that we could be performing seals for Jesus. He came for us. He came for our hearts. He came for our wills, our emotions. He came for the real person within. He came for who you really are, the core of who you are. And the reason why he came for your hearts is both for God's glory and our good. And I think we have a tendency to forget the second one. We can think that all Jesus did was come and die for us to please God's glory. That's exactly right. But within God's glory, we must understand that God's glory is also for our good. And that's the way it works all the way through the Bible. You see, our entire beings have been made by God. And so our hearts have been made by God. So listen... Our hearts, your heart, has been designed by God right from the off then to be a heart that worships something. God made us all that way. Our hearts have been designed by God to be worshippers. The inner core of who we are is designed by God to worship something. And it's also been designed by God at the same time that we would find our identity and our purpose and our security and our joy in something other than ourselves. That's the way we've all been designed, that we would need to find our identity in something, our purpose in something, our security in something, and our joy in something. That's the way God's made it, and it's been designed that way all the way through the scriptures for his glory. The challenge is, all of mankind has spent the last millenniums trying to figure out where to find that, right? And so you go to Sydney, and you start going on the northern beaches, which I absolutely love, and you can see everybody in their boats, and you think, why are they so passionate about boats? Well, because they find our identity in it, and their security in it, and their purpose in it. It's become functionally something that their heart craves. We're all designed by God to find our identity, and our purpose, and our security, and our joy, something outside of our house. But here's the thing we cannot find that our identity, or purpose, or security, and joy in anything else other than God. He's designed that need in our lives to be fulfilled in Him. It's always been the way it is. Mankind looks around the world trying to find an identity. Mankind, ever since the Garden of Eden, has spent his time thinking, Who am I? And God says, Well, you're a child. I, I made you. And God, what am I meant to do? I- Why do my heart so crave this purpose? Well, God's meant to quench that purpose. He gives us that purpose as we understand that I'm a child of God. I'm made for Him. I'm made for His glory. We all crave a security and it's God and God alone that says, I can give you that security you need. I can give you that hope that you need. And it's God and God alone that can give us the joy that we all desire. I'm a big Piper fan. And so Christian hedonism, I love it. Jonathan Edwards was one of the first guys to teach it. But before that, Jesus was one of the first guys to teach it. When you read the word blessed, what do you think it means? It means supremely happy in the plural form. So Jesus seems to brag a lot about supremely happy is the man. There's the clue. He, wa- he wants that. He-, he longs for us to find our joy. He wants us to pursue Christian hedonism. He wants to be amazed that we are alive. The challenge is mankind, instead of finding their joy in Jesus and God, they've just found their joy in boats on the North Shore instead. Do you see how it occurs? The joy isn't the issue. So we shouldn't be walking into churches and just think, well, it's part of being a Christian to be very unhappy. Not according to Jesus. Part of being a Christian is being very happy in Christ and in Christ alone. The issue isn't joy. The issue is the object of our joy. God has designed us to be worshippers. He has designed us to find our identity and our purpose and our security and joy in something other than ourselves. Still with me so far? And so one would assume that 2,000 years ago when Jesus came, when he came to die in our place, to bring us back to the only one who can truly satisfy the longings of our hearts, the only one that can truly find and satisfy that which we desire and identity and security and purpose and joy, that people would be flooding to him and then once arriving to him would spend their entire lives amazed at his grace, being reconnected to the one who can truly satisfy That would make logical sense. But that isn't what happened, eh? 2,000 years ago, mankind decided to reject Jesus as well. They were not interested. They have got so calloused in their sin, so calloused in their stuff, so calloused in the created, that they haven't got time for the creator. So they rejected him. And sadly, even as Christians, the reality is... There's a battle going on in our our heart too, isn't there? Not to reject him. We love Jesus. That's part of what being a Christian is. You want to live for him. You want to please him. And yet, there is still a battle going on in our hearts, is there not? That we want Jesus on the throne, but we probably want something else on the throne as well. Whatever it be. We want something else. We think that something else other than Jesus might provide us with the joy we want or the security that we want or the purpose that we want or the identity that we want. And so we go on the hunt. And therein lies the problem. And that's our second point, number two. Our hearts are idol factories. John Calvin said it first. I'm sure I'm not the second. But it's a truth that is... Profound our hearts, whether we like it, are our idol factories. We want Jesus to be enthroned in our lives, and we come on a Sunday and we say, Jesus, it's all about you. And then we leave the doors and we think, Jesus, could you just jump over a little bit? Because there's other things that I still want as well, right? I mean, there's other things that I'm going to need, and if, if I don't have them, I don't know how I'll survive. So, why don't we just come out and say it's not Jesus and Jesus alone? Then. It's Jesus plus other things. That's the very thing he's trying to protect us from here. See, when we think of idols, I don't know what you think, but I'm sure you're like me. When I think of idols or idol worship, I think of like, you know, little statues and little, little you know, totem poles and things like that, and grown men and women dancing around them and, and washing the poles and doing all the different things. With them. Uh, um, our, our house guest, Melody came home the other day from, from, from work with a, with a little statue. I thought, isn't that lovely? What's that? And a and friend had brought it back from Bali for her. It's a little god. And so we have a little idol. It's sort of wrapped up in the house at the moment. We're not quite sure what to do with it. So we're just looking at it every now and again, wondering what to do with it. It's like, I'm sure this isn't quite right, but, well, let's give it a run. So we've got this little idol. And, and when I think of idols, that's, that's what I think of. I think of little statues or anything like that. If you go to India? You'll find you'll have grown men and women walking around with idols. They'll wash them. They'll try and feed them. They'll look after them. They'll put them up on the floor and they will lie next to them in pain deliberately to try and worship this idol. And you think, this is very strange. but That's what people do. And so often I think when we think of idols, that's what we think of, right? Little wooden or metal or stone carvings of different objects. And just to many ways that the Bible speaks to that. And in many countries of the world, those type of idols obviously still exist. And yet the universal language of the Bible, the universal language of this word, is not about idols made of stone and wood and and metal. It's the idols of the heart. The universal language all the way through this has relations not to those idols. So we're not talking Psalm 121. Where, where the whole point of the different psalm, and he's saying, I, look, I, looked at, I lift my eyes to the hills, where does my help come from? Why is he lifting his eyes to the hills? Is it because they're really big? No. It's because they're filled with idols. It was an idolist, idolatry worship. So they're lifting their eyes to the hills, and he's saying, where does my help come from? And he's saying, it doesn't come from these idols. It comes from the one above. But that's not what the whole of the Bible talks about. It's not really talking about that type of idol worship. It's talking about idols that are found in our hearts. Idols that come from within. Idols that are made in the factory, which is our inner person. And then slowly but surely, we seek to move Jesus to the side and instead put that idol on it, thinking that that will bring us the fulfillment and the hope and the very thing that we're craving. That's what mankind has done for years. And Paul says it well in Romans 1. As he gives us in Romans 1, the history of mankind, the real story of how it all went wrong, how mankind began to implode and all the different things that happened in our world. He explains it for us. In Romans 1 verse 21, he says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Listen. And exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Idol worship. Therefore God gave them up to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. That's what mankind has done for years. That's what he still does today. We worship the created rather than the creator. We make idols. They might not be stone idols, but we all have idols. But then what the book of Ezekiel does is the book of Ezekiel helps paint the picture that our understanding shouldn't just be to outer idols, but they're idols within. They're idols of the heart. Listen to this, because this includes you. Ezekiel 14, verse 1, the elders of Israel have gathered around Ezekiel. He's the prophet they say, Ezekiel, here's the thing. and You're pretty close to God being a prophet. And we've got a few questions for God. So if you wouldn't mind laying them out there to him and letting us know what he says, that would be really helpful. Here's what happens. Some of the elders of Israel came to me and sat down in front of me. Then the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, these men have set up idols in their hearts and put wicked stumbling blocks before their faces. Should I let them inquire of me at all? Therefore, speak to them and tell them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. When any Israelite sets up idols in his heart and puts a wicked stumbling block before his face and then goes to a prophet, I, the Lord, will answer him myself in keeping with his great idolatry. I will do this to recapture their hearts, the hearts of the people of Israel who have all deserted me for their idols. I love that. They're sitting around. God, uh, we've got a few questions for God. And God says, Ezekiel, tell them, I've got a few questions for them. It's the questions about their heart, the idols of their heart, things that are going on within them. Well, friends, it's the same idols, the idols of the heart, that I think are a challenge for us today. Because those idols still exist. Those idols still seek to lure us and tempt us because they're idols that are coming from within They're the idols of the heart. God wants to be enthroned in our hearts. He alone is the one that can satisfy what we want. He alone, as your maker and your creator, tells you exactly what you need to find security and identity and purpose and joy. He tells us exactly. He's so excited about telling us that he puts on flesh and bone and skin and comes after us on a rescue mission to explain that I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the one that can satisfy. I have come so that you may have life and life in abundance. That's why he came. He so wants to tell us because he wants us to be truly satisfied and filled with joy and identity and purpose and the only one that can truly satisfy. God. The one that he's seeking to reconcile us to. And yet our sinful hearts stupidly seek to push Jesus off the throne, the only one that can satisfy, and instead seek to find it in other things, even good things. But before long, we find that we're looking for our identity and our purpose and our security and joy in them. And so, is it wrong to desire to get married? No, it's great. It's a good thing. I love being married. It's a good desire. But the problem comes when it goes from being a desire to a craving and an idol, So it goes from being something that you think, Lord, if it be your will, I would, I would love to get married. There's nothing wrong with that. The problem comes when instead of then Jesus being in our source of security and identity and purpose and joy, we kick him off. And we find instead that desire for a spouse is there. And so we start to think that, If I can't get married, I'm never going to find the identity that I want. Who am I without a husband or a wife? What am I even doing here? Our identity begins to go. Our security, how will I manage without a spouse? How am I going to do this? Our joy begins to go as we realize, I still haven't got a spouse. It's rubbish. Meanwhile, Jesus, who is meant to be on the throne of our lives, offering all those different things of security, identity, purpose and joy, he's over here just looking on. Because that's where we've relegated him to. You then get married. And it's going well. You've managed to crave that idol and that idol has come about. It's good, you're getting married. And three weeks later, the idol isn't performing as well as you hoped that it would. And you decide instead, I want kids. I need kids. If I don't have kids, what what am I even doing here as a woman in the world if I don't have kids? What am I going to do in my future? I can't be happy without kids. I, I, I need them. So once again, Jesus, instead of being the one that we're saying, you alone is all I need, is relegated to the back seat while now the desire for kids goes on the throne and becomes the very thing that we're craving and we want, thinking that I will never, ever be fulfilled unless I have that. Do you see how it works? That's the idol of the heart. That's idol worship. We can do it with health. We can do it with career. We can do it with achievement, intellectualism, education, you name it. The list is very long. Our heart is very discerning and very clever and very subtle. It will put a whole list of things on that throne instead of Christ. But here's what I believe is probably, is probably right up there as something that we can be so tempted to idolize. Money, our treasures... We start to think if I don't have a house in St Ives, I will never be able to cope. How am I going to manage? I mean, seriously, how I can't imagine ever being happy if I don't own a home. How will I how will I have a purpose? I mean, what do you do? Do you just rent and give away money for the rest of your life? That's no purpose. I'm never going to be happy or fulfilled without this. Lo and behold, when we think that, that is full on idol worship and we start living for that house rather than living for Jesus. See how it works? Our hearts are idol factories, and the idol of money is right up there at the top. That's why 15% of what Jesus says relates into money. He is concerned that his followers, his people, his children are so susceptible to idolizing their stuff that he spends 15% of his time, which is a lot of his time, communicating to them about, be careful about this one. He is consistently saying, watch out for greed. Watch out for this. Watch out for this. And yet it's so easy to not watch out for this and instead go by a boat and live on the North Shore thinking life is good. The very thing that Jesus is saying, watch out, is the very thing we think, but surely that doesn't apply to me. I love Jesus and I love my stuff. That's what he's talking about. Basically saying, you can't do that. It doesn't work like that. You see, in verses 22 to 24, Jesus warns us very clearly away from the idol of money by giving us two very clear warnings. Let's read the first one. Verses 22 and 23. This this is the first warning. He's basically saying idolizing money will cloud our view of life. So if you want your view of life to be clouded, then idolize money. But if you don't want your view of life to be clouded, then don't idolize money. This is what he says in verse 22 and 23. He says, The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? I wonder how many of us have read that verse before and thought, I have no idea what he's on about. Let's just brush right on to the next one. I mean, it is one of those slightly tricky ones that you think, what is he on about? I mean, goodness gracious, what is he thinking? It's actually real simple when, when you understand just two specific things. The healthy eye is an eye that is sold out for Jesus and looking at Jesus. A bad eye is an eye that is sold out for money and looking at wealth and treasure and possessions. When you see that, it it just makes sense. The idolizing money will cloud over our view of life. William Barclay says it this way, so helpful. He says, The idea behind this passage is one of childlike simplicity. The eye is regarded as the window by which the light gets into the whole body. The color and state of a window decide what light gets into a room. If the window is clear, clean and undistorted the light will come flooding into the room and will illuminate every corner of it. But if the glass of the window is colored or frosted, distorted, dirty or obscure, the light will be hindered and the room will not be lit up. So then, says Jesus, the light which gets into any man's heart and soul and being depends on the spiritual state of the eye through which it has to pass. For the eye is the window of the whole body. That's so helpful. What he's basically saying is, listen, if you are going to idolize money, what is going to take place is your eye is going to be filmed over. It is going to be so sidetracked with money that you will not be able to enjoy the rest of life. You won't even be able to view the rest of life properly because your vision will be clouded over with your love for money. That's a full-on statement then of why we should avoid it, is it not? Because we have seen, and I'm sure you've all heard of people, if not know people, where this is exactly what has happened in their lives. You meet men, young men, and they're sold out for Jesus. They're passionate about Jesus. And you think, mate, this is going to be fantastic. Let us build churches for the glory of God. Let's play our part. Let's take this gospel out and let's, let's work this city for Jesus. Let's do this. And they say, yes, I want to do this but just a minute i I do want to get married and let's talk sydney now i do want to get married and so living in one of the most expensive cities in the world i've got to have one mother of a deposit and so for the next year i can't fully serve in the church for the next year because for the next year i've got to earn some serious cash so i can get the house that my wife is going to need so you nod and off they go and you see them a year later and you say listen how are we doing are we ready to take this city for Jesus now? Let's do this. Let's brandish this gospel that is so amazing and take it out. And they say, yeah, but the thing is, Dave, I've got married to this woman and this is really good, but she wants kids, man. She is not going to be able to work full time, so I'm going to have to up my working hours just to be able to pay the mortgage that is going to do this. And you say, mate, are you, are you sure? I mean, this is, We're not going to be able to take this city for Jesus when you're working seven days a week. You know what I'm saying? Well, Dave, what do I do? You know, I, I've got to do this. So off they go and they just start serving really their money as they seek to get the things that they think they're going to need, i.e. the house and the kids to satisfy their hearts and give them purpose and identity and joy. And eventually, when you meet them again, when they're older, and they're crying with you, you say, what's up? And as they're weeping with you, they say, you know what? Got the house. We had the holidays. But I barely know the kids. I I was just working. And my marriage, I, we've fallen apart because I worked a lot and we weren't able to build into the relationship. And Dave, the church, I barely feel like I know them anymore. I've been with people like that. What has happened? How has that occurred? They were not like that when they were young and single, passionate about Jesus. But now you meet them in years to come and they've lost it. Here's what's happened. They've idolized money and that has clouded over their view of life. They've not been able to enjoy what's been going on around them. They've not noticed the kids growing up. They've not been able to invest into their marriage and enjoy the fruit of that. They've not seen a church built for the glory of God because they've been worshipping their idol every week at their desk. Just getting their money. So they can take their money and use it in a way that is different to what the Bible says thinking that will bring them satisfaction. But in years to come, they discover it didn't satisfy at all. The very thing I'm telling you this morning. That is a serious warning that Jesus is talking to us about there. He's basically saying, don't waste your life. Because if you give yourself to money, your life is going to be over and you will have done nothing. And you won't even have seen anything in the process. He also gives us a second warning then in verse 24. The warning that idolizing money will make it impossible to serve God as king. He says this, no one, I mean, listen to this, no one, okay, no one, let's be very clear, this is addressing you. People have the uncanny temptation, if you are like me, to think that no one excludes you, because it's different here in Sydney. No, no, no one includes you. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot. You cannot serve God and money. Tim Keller says it this way. I love it. He says, you cannot serve both God and money, Jesus says. And yet we like to think we can, because we are great compromisers. That is so true. We like to think we can, but God, I have two kids, and I serve two kids, and we can have two employers, and we can serve two employers. So surely I can have two masters. I can serve you, and I can live for you on a Sunday morning, and I can give myself to Life Group. But then in the week, I'm just going to, you know, I'm going to earn money because I've got to earn money. How can I survive? I need it to be able to be fulfilled. And Jesus looks you in the eye and says. If you think that can happen, you are deceived because you cannot. You cannot serve both God and money. You cannot have two masters. You cannot have a master of Christ and a master of money. Keller then continues, God should be our only Lord and Master. But in fact, whatever we love and trust, we also serve. Anything that becomes more important and non-negotiable to us, then God becomes an enslaving idol. And it is those idols that then control us. Since we feel we must have them, our life is meaningless, idols dominate our lives. My friends, that is so true. Idols begin to dominate our lives. Idols are so subtle. We start off as Christians, and we become aware... As people that begin to inform us and help us in our Christian walk that all of our money that we're really excited about, all of our treasures that we're really excited about, and all the things that we're really excited about that we have, we learn very quickly they're not ours at all. They're God's. That's true. We read that all the way through Scripture. Nothing is ours. All of our stuff is His stuff. Well, we're just called to steward it for the glory of God. We're seeking to use this for God's glory, to build churches, to take the gospel out, to show hospitality, to show service to people. We're called by God to use our stuff, which isn't our stuff, it's His stuff, to steward for His glory. And we're pretty excited about it when we first hear that. We think, this is pretty cool. I just want to live for Jesus, full on, man. I'm all out there for Jesus. This is all I want to do. I just want to live for Jesus. But then somewhere along the line, we go from remembering that this is God's to thinking it's mine. And I ain't sharing. Because this is my stuff and I worked jolly hard for this stuff. Are you aware of how long I served this idol for to get this stuff in my pocket? And subtly it changes. So it goes from being God's to being ours. And yet what is so clear... From this text is that money idolatry has grave, grave consequences. My friends, if you want to live for Jesus Christ, if you want God to be the all in consuming passion of your life, then you need to bottom out real quick. You cannot have that and be rich and have loads of money and crave that and pursue that. You can't. You can't have two masters. It's one or the other. God isn't willing to share his throne with your bank allowance. He just wants the throne to himself. Because he loves you. And he knows he alone can satisfy and give you purpose and identity and joy. And he doesn't want you wasting your life running after the idols of the heart that will never do that. That's why it says in the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. And we think, oh yeah, it's always a bit strange that one. Okay, so I won't be a Muslim or a Hindu. I'll have no other gods before you. No, no. Your heart is an idol factory. Don't have any other gods before me. Jesus has to be the main thing. He has to be the apple of our lives. You know what I love then about this text is that the Savior not only warns us, He not only looks into our our eyes and communicates the warning of money idolatry, He then gives us a remedy, which is point three. Number three, the Savior's remedy. And let's close with this. Verse 19 through 21. I love it. So says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I love it. Our hearts are idol factories. Get used to it. It's what we do. It's the way we are. We will find things in our hearts to idolize. That we will misunderstand. It will start to find our security and our identity and our purpose and joy in those things. And so we begin to worship them and live for them. Thinking if I can just do more of this, I will be happy. But God looks us in the eyes through Jesus Christ and says, You will never be happy with the idol of money because you will always want more. You will always want more things in your life and you will always need the extra step before you think you'll be happy. It will never satisfy you. And so Jesus Christ then sits us down and he makes it very clear for us, the remedy, what you and what I are to do as his disciples to avoid money idolatry and to instead ensure that our lives are focused 2020 on Christ and Christ alone. This is what he says in a sentence. I'll try and pull it all together for you, okay? Bear with me. One sentence, pulling it together. Our hearts and our treasures are intrinsically linked. And so let's use our treasures to point our hearts to things above. Our hearts and treasures are intrinsically linked. And so what's the point of this text? It's this. So let's use our treasures to point our hearts to things above. So your heart and your treasure is intrinsically linked. They're like synchronized swimmers. You know what I mean? I mean, they just shadow each other. They stick together. For where your treasure is, there is your heart will be also. So is it possible to have my treasure and my heart somewhere else? Not according to Jesus, no. Wherever your treasure is, there will be your heart. They're like synchronized swimmers. They hang out together. And so what is the remedy then to avoid me disheveling Jesus Christ from the throne and instead ensuring that he is the throne of my life? How can I ensure that I don't give myself to the idolatry of money, but instead give myself to Christ and Christ alone? Well, here's the remedy. We take our treasures and we point them to where we want our hearts to go. We point them to things above. Christ and Him crucified. Paul says it in Colossians 3, doesn't he? He says, all things are good. Think about such things. Set your minds and your hearts on things above. And we think, oh, I like that. I quite like the idea of setting my mind and my heart on things above. And Jesus then winds the clock back in Matthew 6 and says, listen, here's how you do that. Here's how you set your minds and your hearts on things above. You take your treasures and you invest them into the kingdom of God. And that's how you're going to set your heart on things above. Because where your heart is, you want it there. Your treasure will be also. Because they're like synchronized us. But where your treasure is, there will always be your heart. So wonderful, eh? Our hearts are idol factories, but God wants our hearts. And so he comes to earth, and he sits us down to disciples and says, Listen, I want your hearts. I alone can satisfy. So here's the temptation you are going to face. You are going to face the temptation towards money idolatry. So I want you to take your money, and I want you to take your treasures, and I want you to invest it into the kingdom of God. Because where your treasure is, there will be your heart also. I alone can satisfy your heart. So use your treasures to point your hearts to things above. And so why sacrifice? As we begin this series, why do it? Well, biblically defined, there are many reasons to sacrifice, eh? And as soon as you read your Bibles, you see that they're everywhere. When we give to the local church, we enable churches to be built, both locally and internationally. We enable places to be built where people can gather and hear the gospel, where they can come and apply the gospel, where they can come and grow in the name of Jesus, and where they can come and by the grace of God, then turn outwards and begin to proclaim the gospel and be Christ in the communities that are around us. Well what would we give that makes that possible. Otherwise it becomes very tricky and very impossible. When we give, we have the ability and opportunity to do something that God loves which we'll be looking at in just a few weeks in 2 Corinthians 9. It says that God loves a cheerful giver. Do you realize that? Do you realize that when that basket comes around on a Sunday, we have the opportunity to do something that God says, I love that. I love it. But here's the thing I want you to have ringing in your ears today. Why sacrifice? Well, because sacrifice provides us with an opportunity to point our hearts to things above. It ain't all about the money. It's about our hearts. It's about who we are. We can't serve two masters. And so if we really want to serve Jesus as our king, then our treasures, all that we have, have to be pointed at our king as well. We can't compromise. There's no other way. So it ain't all about the money. It's primarily about our hearts. And so, folks, I want to encourage you Let's draw on this opportunity then every week to point our hearts to the kingdom of God. Let's utilize the opportunities that are given us to to invest into the kingdom of God for the glory of God. If you are giving and you're part of this church, then thank God for you you. And so many of you must be, otherwise we wouldn't have any money. So thank you for the way you give. If you are not giving, and if you are not giving generously, I want to exhort you. Think about this text. Where your treasure is, there is your heart. Wherever your treasure goes, then, that's where your heart will be. I love you enough to exhort you to ensure that your treasure is with Christ. Here's how. It's a sacrifice. Sacrifice generously. And by God's grace, then, would your hearts follow. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we thank you for your word. And, Savior, we thank you that you would come and stand alongside us as disciples and communicate so clearly. And, Savior, thank you for communicating to us 2,000 years on through your word into a city and into a people like me that so need this reminder. Lord, we are so tempted, I am so tempted, to leave on a Sunday morning and drive past homes and cars and lifestyles that can be so alluring. And yet, Lord, I, like all these individuals in this room, we do want you to be our treasure. We want our hearts to be yours. And so, Lord, help us apply this. Help us consider this. Help us put to death idols where necessary. Lord, we can't play with idols. We need to remove idols and enthrone you actively. So, Lord, would we be a church that is truly sacrificial. And would our hearts then follow in Jesus' name. Amen.